ask you to go ahead and turn to 1 John chapter 5. 1 John chapter 5, and we're going to be looking at verses 4 and 5 this morning. Um, might have been a little um, uh, unclear in the, in the uh, bulletin, but in the notes, hopefully it was clear. Um, that was my fault. But uh, in 1 John chapter 5, verses 4 and 5, we read this. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that overcomes the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? We are exposed to a relentless enemy. And being exposed to such an enemy can be tiresome and at times discouraging. Uh, Scripture is full of stories of those attacks. History is full of the stories of enemies and the grief that they managed to cause those they opposed by their relentlessness. One of our nation's greatest examples of such a character was Francis Marion, known more popularly as the Swamp Fox operating out of South Carolina during the War for Independence. His efforts are described in this way by one biographer. He says, The wily fox of the swamps, never to be caught, never to be followed, yet always at hand, with unimaginable promptness at the moment when he is least feared and least to be expected. Quite a a statement of character for the way this man operated. Marion made life miserable for the British in South Carolina, and the frustration he caused them by the character and the relentlessness of his efforts is legendary. Now, tragically, mankind, men, women, and children, have just such an enemy, one who goes about in much the very same manner, seeking whom he may devour, the scripture says. His efforts are more diabolical, and they're more deceptive, and his aims are far more ruinous. He seeks to destroy body and soul. He seeks to overthrow the kingdom of Christ. He's engaged with the influence of the world and the passion of worldliness in men and women and children. Engaged with that passion to lead them to ruin when possible, and if not, to at least misery and frustration. Now, John Calvin wisely gathers together um, whatever this idea of worldliness, and he says it is whatever is opposed to the Spirit of God. He says, that's what worldliness is, whatever is opposed to the Spirit of God. And then he goes on to say that the corruption of our nature is a part of the world. All lusts, all the crafts of Satan in short, whatever leads us away from God may fall under this term of worldliness. Now, this reality engages the believer in a very real and a very serious conflict. Because when you believe and you become a new creature in Christ by faith, 
you don't cease to be the objects of the malice or the hatred of your enemy, Satan. On the contrary, he continues a relentless harassment whereby he seems always at hand with unimaginable promptness at the moment when he's least feared and least to be expected. It's the way he operates. It's the way he functions. But unlike the legendary figure of our national history, as relentless and powerful as the enemy seems, he is already overcome. He may fight on, but among those who are begotten of God, John says, he is thoroughly, he is a thoroughly defeated enemy. He will never triumph, never achieve his ends. He has already lost the day. That's what John is referring to here. Look at verse 4 and the first thing that John says. Everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. Every Christian, each one who has been begotten of God, is conquering the world. Is the world active? (laughs) Yes, it is relentless in all its forms. Does the enemy attack with fierceness and malice? Oh, yes. Paul confessed to the Corinthians that he was afraid for them. He said to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 3, But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. Jesus, after warning his disciples about some of the trials that were about to fall on them, said this to them in John chapter 16, verse 33. I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. He's warning them. In this world you're going to have tribulation. But in the one begotten of God... The world and the devil meet the overcomer. (coughs) That's what they run into in those who are begotten of God. Overcomers. Ones who by faith have already gained victory over them both. Now, we have to understand what it means to be begotten of God, of course. John wrote this in uh, his gospel. He says in John chapter 1 and and verse 9 about Jesus, that he is the true light which comes, which gives light to everyone. And he was coming into the world. He was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, He gave the right to become the children of God who were born not of blood nor of the will of the flesh nor of the will of man but of God. Those of you then this morning who have been born not of blood not of the will of the flesh nor the will of man but born of God have overcome the world. That's what John says here in his epistle. 
Whatever is adverse to the spirit of God, the corruption of your nature, all lusts, all the crafts of Satan, in short, whatever leads you away from God, it has been conquered by your faith, John says. Now, that's a very powerful and dramatic statement. And I think our natural reaction would be, well, how can these things be? By, by what means am I the victor already over these things? And I think it's safe to say that this question is particularly earnest because we often find ourselves under attack by the enemy and he seems to be so often at hand with unimaginable promptness. And it's at the moment when we least expect him. When he's least feared, there he is. And we're struggling, and we, we wonder, well, how is this, how can this be true, what John says? That we're conquering, that we're the overcomers, that we've already defeated him by faith. If you've ever done any wrestling or any boxing, and your opponent has you in a hold that seems inescapable, or he's pummeling you into a corner, into the ropes, and the coach or the trainer yells over to you, don't worry, you're tiring him out. You've got this. He's yours. I can remember being in a hold that I didn't think I was ever going to be able to break, wrestling, and having the coach say, it's okay, you're winning, and thinking, how is it I'm winning? I don't see that right now. But he's watching the whole picture, and that encouragement is what is needed at the moment. And he begins to see, or he can see, that there's a weakness there. And that through perseverance, that weakness will be overcome. You're in the grip, or being pummeled, and you're taking the blows to the body, and it doesn't seem... Like, you're going to actually win in the end. But then things begin to change. And encouraged by that urging on, the victory that the coach could see was inevitable becomes believable. And becoming believable, it stirs you to action, and your renewed vigor gives you growing Strength and the growing weakness of your opponent becomes obvious and you overcome and prevail. Sometimes we feel that way in the struggle with the enemy, that we're in his grip, we're under his oppression, and the Lord here is telling us through John that we've already overcome, and we're thinking, how? Well, how does this happen? What is this I'm going to overcome? How is this possible? But John also gives the answer, and he does it in the second part of verse 4. He immediately shows the believer, born of God, by what means this statement is true, that he or she is an overcomer. And it's there in the second part of verse 4. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Our faith is the means by which we prevail. 
It's as though John was saying this. This is the conquest that overcomes the world, our faith. It is as we read in Zechariah, not by might, not by power, but by the Spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Your faith, beloved, is the means by which you have overcome the world. And the faith which you have from God isn't a weapon, uh, Calvin says, for a single day, but for a lifetime of conflict. So when these conflicts arise, you meet them by grace, ready to do the battle by faith. The one begotten of God ought not and must not shy away from the duel or allow despair to overshadow him or to her or her or suggest to you surrender knowing that you're going to win why would you quit why would you do it and that's what John is setting before us here you are overcomers you are begotten of God well, how are you going to overcome? By your faith, by your trust and confidence in God. You think of David. The person who is going to prevail must be like David, confident of the outcome. David explained that he wasn't afraid of Goliath, and he explained why to King Saul. In 1 Samuel 17, verse 32, David said to Saul, Let no man's heart fail because of him, that is Goliath. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. I'll do it. And Saul said to David, You're not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him. You are a youth, and he is a man of war from his youth. But David said to Saul, Your servant used to keep his father's sheep. And when a lion or a bear came and took a lamb out of the flock, I went out after it and struck it and delivered the lamb from its mouth. And when it arose against me, I caught it by its beard and struck and killed it. Your servant has killed both lion and bear, and this uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them, seeing he has defied the armies of the living God. Moreover, David said, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear, he will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, go, and the Lord be with you. We are assured of victory through the Lord Jesus Christ. But we are not to retire from the conflict or the battle. We're to enter into it putting our trust and confidence in the Lord who has delivered us by faith in the past and to move forward with our confidence in him. Calvin says, For the Lord thus bids his people to be certain, while yet he would not have them to be secure. But on the contrary, he declares that they have already overcome in order that they might fight more courageously and more strenuously. And what he means is that we're not supposed to take it upon ourselves that because we have this victory, we don't have to fight. 
that the victory's already ours in that sense, and we don't have to be prepared for the conflict or be ready to do battle. No, we do. But we go into the battle knowing that we are overcomers by faith. Well, where's the evidence of this? If that's true, where's the evidence? In the midst of some particularly difficult conflict, you might be tempted to ask that question. Where's the evidence that this victory is really mine? And I would answer (coughs) that if it were not so, beloved, you would be overcome in the smallest of your struggles. If it wasn't so, that you're an overcomer by faith, you wouldn't be just contending on the great field of struggle. You'd be defeated and failing in the smallest struggles. You don't have any strength of your own for a spiritual battle. All that you have comes to you from God. Do not let the world in the form of pride suggest to you that you overcome the small struggles by your own resolve and strength and that you only need the help of God for hard stuff. And then when you get into the difficult times, say, well, how do I know I'm an overcomer? How do I know I'm going to win this battle? You've already won many battles by your faith, by the grace of God. In Psalm 124, verses 1 through 5, a psalm of ascents of David, we read, If it had not been the Lord who was on our side, let Israel now say, If it had not been the Lord who was on our side, when people rose up against us, then they would have swallowed us up alive when their anger was kindled against us. Then the flood would have swept us away. The torrent would have gone over us. Then over us would have gone the raging waters. The Christian's victories are not like the, the scores in soccer or basketball or volleyball where you give an assist or, or God gives you an assist or he sets things up and then you score. It's not like that. He gets the credit for it all. He does set it up, and then he scores on your behalf. And that's how you win the victory. And that brings us to verse 5. What is this faith that overcomes? Well, this is how it works. But it works by faith, but what is that faith? What's the character of that faith? Who is it that triumphs this way? And John answers in verse 5, Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? And we touched on this briefly last week, but it deserves emphasis here. We don't want to underestimate what that statement means. That this Victory belongs to the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. It's so easy to underestimate the force and the power of that statement and what is intended there. 
And we should understand that depending on just how fully you understand this, um, how thoroughly you embrace it, and how strong a grip it has on your mind and on your heart and your soul, so will you enjoy the blessing, the joy, and the hope of overcoming the world. The, the, the more understanding you have of what it, what it means to believe in Jesus as the Son of God, the greater and more frequent will be the victories that you have. When we think of Jesus as the Son of God, the first thing that I'd like for you just to reflect on is that as the Son of God, he is the terror of demons. You may recall that after Jesus stilled the storm on the Sea of Galilee, he came to the other side and was confronted by two men, and they were possessed by demons. Men who prevented people from passing by them by their rage and their anger and their terror. And Jesus drew near to these two men, and we read this in Matthew chapter 8 and verse 29. And suddenly they cried out, saying, What have we to do with you, Jesus, you Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? They were terrorized by the presence of the Son of God. These demons who were working in the life of this individual. If you believe that Jesus is the Son of God, you believe him to be the terror of demons. And when you see the work of the evil one going on, it's important that you remember by faith that you have overcome by your faith in that one, the Son of God. That one who is the terror of those demons. And beloved, that should impact the way you pray and the way you approach the struggles that you find yourself in and others in. You perhaps have people you love who seem to be in the grip and the hand of Satan and you wonder what you can do for them. Well, beloved, you can go to the Son of God who is the terror of demons and pray to him to release them from that grip. And to show them mercy. And to show them love. And to deliver them. You can pray it for yourself when you, when you see yourself in the grip that way. And, and you see yourself being influenced in ways that you don't want to be influenced. And you want to escape from. Don't try to escape in your own strength. Go to the one who is the terror of demons and ask him to be your deliverer. To rescue you. To rescue that one you love from the grip of those things. And you see why I say that the more you understand that, the more you believe that, the more you know who he is as the son of God, the more power you will have in those things. You won't go with a lackluster prayer and say, dear Jesus, please help my friends because they're in trouble. You'll go to him as the son of God. And say, as the terror of demons, please deliver this one I love and care about from the grip they're in. As the terror of demons, deliver me from this that plagues me and make me free from it so that I can serve you. It's a statement, this statement of Jesus here, that, uh, this statement that the demons make, excuse me, it's a statement full of significance. 
But I only referenced it here just to show the view that these minions from hell had of the Son of God. Do you have that view of him? Is that the way you look at him when you say you believe in the Son of God? And those of you who don't believe, <coughs> you may not believe in Jesus Christ. You might not love the Son of God. But my friend, if you don't, then you ought to fear him. You ought to fear him. Because he's even the terror of demons. Secondly, he's the master of the universe. He has power over the whole physical world and its forces. And there's a scene that is so often referenced as an incentive to put your faith in the Savior. And it's from Matthew chapter 14. Jesus has just finished a day of healing the sick and the lame. At the close of the day, he feeds the multitude that were following him. And then he dismisses the people and he sends his disciples out on the sea. And they encounter a strong wind. And that strong wind keeps them from making any progress. They're exhausting themselves and and trying to move forward towards the other side of the Sea of Galilee. And as they're battling the winds and the waves, Jesus comes walking along in perfect peace on the surface of the water. And when they see him, they're afraid. But when he calms their hearts, you remember, Peter asked to be allowed to come to him on the water. And you're familiar with what happens next. It's in Matthew 14, beginning in verse 30. But when he, that is Peter, saw the wind, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, O you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. And those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. When they saw him walking on the water, when they saw him lift Peter out of the water, when he got into the boat and the wave and winds stopped immediately, what was their response? They worshipped him. And they said, truly, you are the Son of God. Why? Because it's obvious that you have this authority and power over all things, over the whole physical world. Is that the Son of God that you believe in this morning? The one who has that kind of power and that kind of authority over all things? Who can still the waves? Who can walk on water? Who can suspend the laws of the physical world to accomplish his own will and his own purpose? Is that the Son of God that you pray to? Is that the Son of God that you call on? Is that the Son of God that you worship? And I think you can see, if it is, you can see what John means here. 
This is the faith that overcomes the world. What faith? That you believe that the Son of God is this, Jesus, with this kind of power, with this kind of authority, with this kind of rule over the whole creation. That strengthens your faith, and it makes you the overcomer. It helps you to see that even though you may be in that hold that you can't seem to break yourself, by his promise you will break it because of who he is and because of your trust and faith in him. Again, there's much that could be said here about the scene. But just look at the sheer authority. The sheer authority that Jesus wields in regards to the whole physical world. The world in which you live, and he's the master of it. When you say that you believe he's the son of God, this is part of what you're confessing to. And if you truly believe this, beloved, it has to impact your thinking and therefore your life. When you have a real faith in this reality concerning him, it gives life to these words in Matthew chapter 6 from Jesus when he says therefore do not be anxious saying what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear for the Gentiles seek after these things and your heavenly father knows that you need them all but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you well how by the master of the universe. That's how. By the one who's the terror of demons. You put your faith in him, and these things will be added to you. And then, lastly, just by example here, he gives life to the dead. In John chapter 5, and verse 25, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here, when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. Whose voice will they hear? The voice of the Son of God. And when they hear his voice, they will live. No one else makes that claim. Not among men or other so-called gods. You search for it. You won't find anybody making this claim. That there is coming a day, and in fact it now is, that when people hear my voice, the voice of the Son of God, though they were dead, they will be alive. Nobody says that. No one but the Son of God. And A.W. Pink says this. What a paradox or a contradiction to the carnal or worldly mind. Yet all becomes luminous or bright and clear when we remember that it is the voice of the Son of God they hear. His voice alone can penetrate into the place of death and become his voice, and because his voice is a life-giving voice, the dead hear it and live. The capacity to hear accompanies the power of the voice that speaks, and it is just because that voice is a life-giving one that the dead hear it at all, and hearing live. Is that the Son of God you believe in? Whose voice, when it's heard, can penetrate dead men 
penetrate their dead hearts and bring forth life? Is that the Son of God that you're worshiping? Is that the one that you believe in? Is that the one that you have faith in? If you do, then you will be an overcomer. That's what John is saying. If you believe that because you've been begotten by God, and you believe that he really is the Son of God, then what confidence must you have in his word? And certainly, how does that impact you and increase your faith in prayer? He's the daily source of life. Paul tells us in Galatians chapter 2 and verse 20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. James Ferguson, the profound Scottish commentator, says, and I'm just paraphrasing him here, that by this faith there must be a communication of influence from the Spirit of Christ to excite the believer, to enable him or her to love God and others as commanded. It's necessary to equip the Christian to persevere in love, to effectively order and direct their heart in the practice of all that is spiritually good. We need this kind of faith in the Son of God in order to be able to live the life for Christ that overcomes, that overcomes by love. So that when we're showing love to someone whose heart seems hard and resistant, we believe that by the power of the Son of God, that heart can be broken, that heart can be overcome. That life can be changed. And we go in the spirit of faith. This is what it means to have Christ living in us, beloved. To have him as the head over our passions and over our members. This is what it means to be rooted in him as a branch, drawing from him all things necessary for life and for growth. It is this sort of faith, beloved, that lifts the proclamation, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, out of the trite and simplistic uses and places and at the head of our lives as believers where it ought to be. It's interesting that so often in sports competitions, that verse is quoted we're going to win the victory. We're going to win this, this game because we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. And the same people who believe that in the daily battles and struggles of their spirit can't seem to find that verse or apply it under the circumstances. And yet it needs application. It's the way that Men come to love their wives like Christ loved the church. It's the way that wives come to respect and honor their husbands as the church honors Christ. It's the way that children come to obey their parents and to love them. It's the way that believers come together in a spirit of unity and joy before the Lord and of service. It's the way that we find the grace and the strength to be able to bring the gospel to those who are lost. 
by doing all things through Christ who strengthens us. Paul said that that, being able to do all things through Christ, was the key to his contentment in every condition in life, in plenty and in want, in sorrow and in joy, in sickness and in health. Let's pray. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, we are at times overwhelmed by the idea that we are overcomers. Sometimes we feel ourselves in the strong grip of our own weakness and our own frailty, our own fears and our own doubts. But Lord, we would overcome by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray, Father, that we would worship from the heart the one who is truly the Son of God. That, Lord, we would look to the one who is the terror of demons, the one who is the master of the universe, the one who is able to bring life out of death, that we would look to him for strength and grace to be able to live our lives in a way that glorifies you and, Lord, is salt and light in this dark world. And, Father, we would have our prayers strengthened by that faith, that confidence in you, that we would not meekly pray, but we would seek to take heaven by storm, by the storm of our prayers. We don't worship a meek God in the sense that you have no power or no strength. There was a meekness in Christ, but it was an overcoming meekness. And we pray, Lord, that by that strength, we would see your kingdom prevail. And Lord, we would see your name glorified. And Lord, that we would be lost in praise and love and wonder. If there's anyone here this morning who is without any fear of Christ, without any love for Christ, I pray, Lord, that they would see that the Son of God is one who they must either love or fear. And Lord, surrender and come forward and pray for mercy and find that power which belongs to those, that conquering, that overcoming power that belongs to those who are in Christ. Grant it, Lord, by your grace, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.